What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Brothers and sisters, let me invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and find your place in Romans chapter 9, a passage that's challenging as you know, a book that's challenging as you know, a passage this morning that few fear to tread into Romans chapter 9, but we're going to continue on in this study. If you are visiting with us, we're walking through the book of Romans. We started way back in January, and now we come to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to walk through that this morning. And let me just uh, remind you, we're walking through this book together as a church family. What does that look like? Well, again, it looks like morning worship in here on Sundays. We're going verse by verse through this book, but it also looks like life groups where our life groups get together and talk through some of these truths. And I'm hearing stories of some lively discussion over the past few weeks, especially around Romans 9. That's a good thing. And then there's a reading plan available for you online. There's also a paper copy. Encourage you, really, to be reading through Romans on your own. It will mean so much more to you when you come in here on Sundays or in your life group that you're equipped and you've been reading through these great truths on your own. And then finally, Behind the Message happens every Wednesday night here on our campus. Um, but the point of that is to go behind the message, to take some of the things in here, go a little deeper with those things on Wednesday night, 6.30. If you don't have a place yet to connect, it's a great place to join us on Wednesday night in Behind the Message. Now, Romans chapter 9. A lot of good emails this week, a lot of good conversation, a lot of thought, a lot of questions. Told you last week, it, it, don't take this as just one message. We're going Romans 9, 10, and 11. All this will kind of fit together. You're probably going to leave with more questions than you have answers, and that's okay. But let's continue on. Romans chapter 9 this morning. Now, I want to kind of set up what we're going to be wrestling with and help us get the context, do a little bit of review. And I want to start this way. It's just something that occurred to me with a lot of questions that were coming in and a lot of thought about the topic in Romans chapter 9. And, he, and here's a thought. We as Americans are genuinely uncomfortable with the idea of a human sovereign leader. And you can just think through that in your own mind, that the idea that there is a human leader who has 
complete sovereignty leaves us very uncomfortable and for good reason. I mean, it doesn't take us very long to think back through history. We don't even have to go historical. We can read the news headlines now of leaders who are in place and have been entrusted with some degree of sovereignty or uh, absolute sovereignty. We know, as it's been said, that absolute power in the human heart corrupts absolutely. So no, no human can, can rightly take this place of sovereignty and it not be corrupted and it not be used for wrong purposes. All of us know through history people who have served under human sovereign fallen leaders and they've been robots and they've had to serve under this despotic leader or they wind up dead. So throughout history, we, we think, and the idea of sovereignty of a leader leaves us really uncomfortable. Even as Americans, our nation, the, the revolution started with the idea is we will not have a sovereign. We will be free. That whole idea of a sovereign leader leaves us very uncomfortable. Here's the point I'm trying to make. In our human experience, we have never seen or witnessed a sovereign leader who has absolute sovereignty and at the same time, perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect mercy, infinite wisdom, only God alone. So we have no human example to look to and go, okay, so that's what sovereignty looks like. We have no human example, so we come to places like Romans 9, and we come to the Scriptures, and we struggle with this idea of sovereignty. But, but in that, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation clearly reveals a God who is unashamedly declaring to us his own sovereignty. He is absolutely sovereign. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? Paul, Paul's going to wrestle with some of that here in Romans 9. Throughout the Bible, the declaration of God's sovereignty is clear. You don't have to write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. Let me just give you a couple verses Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Daniel 4, Josh referred to it earlier, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He, God, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Ephesians 1, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. 1 Timothy 6, he, God, is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the idea that our God is absolutely sovereign in the affairs of us, men and women, is a clear teaching in the pages of Scripture. Now, the challenge for us is, how does all that play out? What are all the implications of that? Paul's going to deal with that in Romans chapter 9. Now, in Romans chapter 9, Paul does not hold out divine sovereignty as a problem to be overcome, but as a solution and an answer to be embraced. Paul's not dealing with the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 as if it's something, well, that doesn't make any sense. We've got to figure this thing out. We've got to kind of swallow it like a pill. He's holding out divine sovereignty as the solution and an answer to a major problem he's wrestling with in Romans 9. Here's the problem. Go ahead and look there. We, we talked about it last week. 
We come out of all these great truths of Romans, all these great blessings of the gospel. Then you get to Romans 9.1, and Paul has a major conundrum. He has a major problem. In light of all the blessings of God, in light of all the promises of the gospel, Paul says this, basically, what are you going to do with Israel? What? How does Israel fit into all this? Paul, as a Jew, and he looks, and at the time of the writing of Romans, as is much the case today, many, if not most, of those people, the Israelites, Paul is saying, my heart is breaking for the people of Israel because they have rejected their Messiah, King Jesus. And it breaks Paul's heart, and that's a massive burden for Paul. And he deals with that at the beginning of Romans 9. But then he extends it to a greater, broader issue and says, at the same time, not only does not only does the state of Israel break my heart for those people who reject their Messiah, but it can also be a massive stumbling block to the advancement of the gospel. And Paul knows that, and he's speaking to this church made up of Jew and Gentile, and the thinking was this, okay, how can I trust this God who's made all these promises to Israel throughout the Old Testament, and man, it appears, God's, it appears God's promises for Israel have failed. Because look, they, hold, they reject in wholesale. How can I trust the promises of Romans 8? How can I trust the promises of Romans 5? When I look and what my eye can see are the chosen people of God, Israelites rejecting. Here's the conclusion. Does Israel rejection mean God's redemptive plan has failed? That's a problem. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How do you read what Scripture says of God's purposes, God's plan, God's redemption that's going to take place? God has all things in, in His hand. He works all things out for our good. But you look around at circumstances in your own life, and in the immediate context of your life, it appears, God, something is wrong here. I think you failed. Because we've all had those dilemmas, and we've all had those situations. Paul says the solution is, is we need to wrestle with the reality of God's absolute divine sovereignty. That's what he says, verse 6, really quick. He, we had a big truth last week, for, so just for review, he says verse 6, Romans 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word has not fallen. God's word has not come up short. So our big truth from last week was this, God's redemptive plan will not fail. And he supports that last week because we saw with two examples. We saw uh, uh, Israel, we saw Isaac and Ishmael, two sons born of Abraham, both Jews, both sons, and God in his sovereignty chose one of them to be the son of promise, but one was not chosen by God. And then we came to Jacob and Esau, another example that Paul uses from last week. Two sons, born of the same father, born of the same mother, while they were still in the womb. One was chosen to be the son of promise. One was not chosen to be the son of promise. How does all that work out? And we saw that verse 11 of Romans 9. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him, God, who calls so our big idea from last week was this. Big truth, God's plan will not fail. Big idea out of that is this. God redeems on the basis of his unconditional sovereign choice. So Paul is holding out the idea of God's 
sovereignty in the affairs of men and women, even in the arena of salvation, not as a problem to overcome, but as an answer to the question, can God keep his promises? How do I know I can trust God of Romans 8 that he will work all things out according to his purpose and his pleasure for those who love him and call him? How can I trust there's no condemnation? How can I trust that I'm more than a conqueror? Paul says because we serve a God who is absolutely sovereign and he works all things out not because of what is in us but because of what is in him. See that? So he deals with that. He talks about that redemption is not based on us. It's not based on what we've done. It's not based on even how we would respond. It's based on what is in God. So that causes some dilemma in our heart. This idea of an absolute sovereign over some of these things causes us pause. And Paul deals with the nature of who God is for the rest of this chapter. Now, disclaimer, all right? You ready? For us as a family of faith who are wrestling with some of these truths in our life groups and in conversations and we're here on Sunday morning, remember a few things we said last week. How do we approach such a difficult passage as Romans chapter 9? Number one, we we approach it with humble repentance. Pastor Mike, doesn't make sense to me. Here's what I was taught. I got it all figured out. I know what I believe. Well, that's fine as long as you submit that to the authority of Scripture. Spurgeon said it well. Put that Spurgeon quote up on the the screen. We looked at this last week. Spurgeon said, always stand to it that your creed or your presupposition or what you hold to be true must bend to the Bible and not the Bible to your creed and dare to be a little inconsistent with yourselves, if need be, sooner than be inconsistent with God's revealed truth. Meaning, we're going to submit our presuppositions to what God's Word says. That's humble repentance. Secondly, we need to remember that brothers and sisters may not always agree on some of the finer points of these things. Amen? But in a body of Christ, one of the lessons and benefits of walking through difficult passages and things like this is not only what we learn about the greatness of God, but watch this, how we learn to relate to one another when we might not agree on finer points. Y'all hear that? You might need to remind one another of that in life group when you're ready to go to battle, right? And, oh, I believe this. Well, I believe this. Okay. We're known by our love toward one another. I'm going to keep that in mind. And then thirdly, often you will have more questions than answers. (laughs) So I told you that last week. This is a five-part message series, 9 through 11. You're probably going to have more questions today than you came in here with. That's okay. Hang with us. We're, we're going to walk through chapter 11. Some of this stuff's going to fit together. Some of it's not going to fit together. But our point is to have the right view of who God is. So let's press on. Let's continue in. So if God's sovereign, if, if it's up to what is in Him, even in the arena of election, i got questions. Here's the first question. After last week, walked out in the foyer, first question that came to me, good question, I appreciate it. Someone said, well, hey, that's not fair. Not fair. That's a valid question. And I said to this person, come back next week. (laughs) Because Paul deals with it right here, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Let me translate that to you in East Tennessee. That ain't fair. Not fair. 
doesn't seem fair in our human mind that God would make some choices and God would choose some and not others. And I don't understand all of that. And that's why Paul deals with it here. He says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Strongest negative in the Greek language. Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Verse 15, he's going to give two illustrations of this. He's going to use Moses as an illustration. And he's going to use Pharaoh of an illustration. And here's Paul's point. I want, Paul said, I want to redefine and stretch your understanding of fairness. Because it's a stumbling block for us sometimes. So he says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Moses, this is a quotation from Exodus chapter 33, and you can go read it on your own. We're not going to take time to look at it in detail this morning, but here's the picture. Exodus 33, remember that crazy story when Moses went up on the mountain, and down in the valley, the Israelites built this golden calf. They plated it with gold, and they fell down and worshipped it and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt, and they were committing idolatry, and Moses comes down, he throws down the Ten Commandments, and God judges some of those people for their idolatry and kills 3,000 of them. And Moses is a little bit shaken by that, and he comes back to God, he says, okay, God, what about us? What are you going to do? How's all this going to work out? How could you judge some and not others? What about me? What does all this mean? Show me something, Lord. Show me your glory. Remember that in Exodus 33? That's the context. And God passes by in front of him, reveals things about his character, and one of his character was this, I will have compassion on who I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Let me redefine your understanding of fairness because in that context, fairness was every one of the Israelites were consumed. That would have been fair. But God didn't. And to Moses, he said, mercy, I, Moses, I'm going to give you mercy, and I'm going to extend mercy to some and to you. But fairness, if you want to operate just on the basis of fairness, that means every single one of those Israelites deserved judgment, and I didn't in mercy. Mercy. Keep going. He keeps on. He says, okay, I'll give you another illustration. What about Pharaoh? You remember Pharaoh, leader of Egypt? You say, Pharaoh seemed to live forever. His name comes up. Well, Pharaoh's a title, all right? There was a lot of Pharaohs. The Pharaoh at this time, God says, okay, what, what does Pharaoh teach us? For this very purpose, I have raised you up, the scripture says to Pharaoh, quoting Exodus, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pause. Romans 9, 17, great verse to spend some time meditating on and walking through. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at this time. Pharaoh said to Moses, who is this Lord that I will obey him? Pharaoh was very proud of his power and the authority he had been given. And the Bible says to Pharaoh, hey, big boy, you have that position of authority because God put you there. And the challenge of Pharaoh is this. Did Pharaoh's rejection and rebellion of the true God thwart God's plan? Does human rejection of the gospel thwart God's plan? And again, we're dealing with some deep issues in the way God works and all that. And Paul 
concludes and takes what Exodus says and says, no, 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 it didn't thwart God's plan at all. Somehow, in the counsel of God, it perfectly carried out God's plan. Pharaoh was in the position he was in because of God's plan. He showed his power through Pharaoh. And then verse 18, he concludes and says, so then, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So you got the most powerful man in the world, rejects. you got the people of Israel who deserved wrath and they received mercy. How's all this work? Here's your second big idea this morning. God's redemptive plan will not fail. Big truth. Here's your second big idea. God's sovereign choice demonstrates undeserved mercy. If we do not understand that reality and we don't remind ourselves of Romans chapter 3 that says we are all condemned, we are all rebels, there is none righteous, then here's what we will conclude. God, what you do and how you operate is unfair. I deserve mercy. God, you should show me mercy and you should show every other person mercy. And the reality is that is not the way it operates and not God's economy. We all deserve wrath. And God in his gracious mercy chooses to save some it's not a basis of fairness fairness all are condemned justice all are condemned and rightly so mercy I save I redeem now let me try to give you a human illustration I, I through this series I, I, to be honest I've tried not to use too many human illustrations because they break down I want to just stick to the scriptures but think about it like this we don't understand human fairness unless it's like this to so say court of law you got 10 axe murderers 10 child molesters 10 men who are absolutely guilty the weight of evidence is uh, enormous they're clearly guilty they all deserve judgment and for some reason a victim comes in and the judge comes in and says no 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 we're going to release three of these men they're guilty but we're going to show them mercy and three men are going to be released your question at that point is not why didn't you show mercy to all of them your question at that point is why in the world have you extended mercy to any? That's the point that Paul is trying to make here. God operates on the basis of his undeserved mercy. Oh my God, I got a real problem. I got a real a challenge by what it says here about Pharaoh in verse 18 that God chooses or he wills to show mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. What does that mean? If you read the story of Pharaoh, you know the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh to his heart ten times. Pastor Mike, what does harden mean? It means to make hard. <laughs> the point is, he's talking about his heart. It's a metaphor for his resistance against the will of God. He hardened his own heart. God hardened his heart. How does all that work together? Let me turn to John MacArthur who says it this way. Exodus refers to God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. 
This does not mean that God actively created unbelief or some other evil in Pharaoh, but rather that God withdrew all the divine influence that ordinarily acted as a restraint to sin and allowed Pharaoh's wicked heart to pursue its own sin unabated. What? That means that God doesn't even have to actively do anything in our lives for our hearts to be hard. Our natural condition is sin and rebellion. And if God removes his grace to any degree or the divine initiative, our heart will go headlong into sin because it's who we are. It's hard to hear. That's who we are. So to Pharaoh, it's like Romans 1. He simply withdrew. He simply gave him over to his own sin. Now, I've got to be careful the way I say this and, and hear me. And this is going to cause more questions than it causes answers. It appears God simply gave Pharaoh over to his own free will. And his own free will continued him down a path of rejection, which is the same place every single one of us would be apart from divine mercy. We're Pharaoh. And the point is that we celebrate the mercy of God that has been received to us who are completely undeserving of that mercy rather than somehow say, God, you're unfair. Don't cry fairness. Embrace mercy that has been given by God. So Paul continues and he, he wisely knows the questions that are going to be asked. So he asks the question, well, that's not fair. What do you do with that? Then he goes to another question. Okay, then. Well, how can God still find fault? So if God's sovereign in all of this, how can he still hold anyone responsible? How can he still find fault? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? And who can resist his will? It's like saying, God, I don't understand all this. It seems so flippant. God, do you really know what you're doing? How can you hold anybody responsible? It's almost this attitude toward God. And Paul answers verse 20 again. He doesn't answer with human reason. He answers on the basis and the authority of Scripture. He's going to quote Isaiah 26. He says, but who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonorable use? Who are you, O man? Here's your third big idea. God's sovereign choice is based on who God is. Who God is. So we get this picture that Paul's holding out here of a potter and clay, right? So we all got to get this picture, and he's using this, and he draws it from Isaiah. So we get the picture of this guy with a, a pedal and, you know, the, the thing that you spin and shape all that. I don't know what all that's called, but... I thought about this week having Jeremy Bledsoe up here on stage, kind of being a potter with a wig. You know, I thought it'd be cool for Jeremy, but it'd be a little awkward. Anyway, so we didn't do that. The image of that is not the picture Paul's trying to convey. The image that he's trying to convey is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 29 because he's quoting Isaiah. Now, I want you to listen to this because this is incredibly applicable to our culture today, to our own hearts. And here's what Paul's saying, Isaiah 29, 16. Isaiah saying to the nation of Israel, you turn things upside down. You, you flip the order of things and the way they're supposed to operate. You turn things topsy-turvy. What do you mean? As if the potter were thought to be like the clay. 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. In other words, left to ourselves and our culture around us. What's this? Always flip things upside down and we place ourselves in the position of God. So the natural tendency for us in some of these things dealing with God and His sovereignty is to kind of bow up, hands on fist, declare, God, how is that fair? How is that just? What are you doing? And Isaiah to Israel and Paul to us says, hold on, big boy. When you put yourself in that position, understand you are flipping things upside down and you are forgetting that God is God and you are not. Now, I just tell you, the culture we live in today that's out there and our own wicked heart that's in here grates against that because left to ourselves, you and I really want to be our own sovereign and we really want to be our own king and we really want to rule over our own world. So when we come to things like Romans 9, we need to be reminded from the book of Isaiah, let me just remind you of something. When you run through all these conclusions in your head, when you try to figure out how all this works, just keep in mind, keep it in the right order he is God and you are not man we need to be reminded of that we 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 love to embrace that when it's again Romans 8 28 you're going to cause all things to work together for good because you're sovereign when it comes to the fact that God has complete authority over me and over my choices and over my life sometimes we grate against that And Josh said it great earlier, we like for God to be authoritative over some things, but not all things. We just have to be careful. He is God, and you're not, and I'm not. And Paul declares that here, so helpful. Verse 22, he continues on quickly, and then we're going to kind of move into a time of response. Verse 22, he says, what if God... What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? There's a phrase that's going to continue through these verses. It's this idea of declaring, of making known, of revealing. What if God desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? What's all that mean? Really quick. Big idea number four is this. God's sovereign choice makes known his greatness. Paul says, in the mind and the counsel and the purposes of God, what if God chooses through my life to display wrath? He has absolute authority to do that. What if in the mind and the purpose and the counsel of God in my life, God chooses to reveal his power? He has absolute authority to do that. What if in my life or your life, God chooses to display his patience? It says he's with patience deals with those who are rebellious. Aren't you thankful that because you have another breath before you came to know Christ? God gave you another breath. That was his patience and forbearance to you and long-suffering to you before you came to know him. Aren't you glad Christ didn't return some of you in this room 10 years ago? Because if he had, you would be in trouble. God displays his patience. And Paul says, what if God in his sovereignty chooses in some to put on display his glory? 
and his glory in mercy and his glory in forgiveness and his glory in grace and all that God is. The point that you conclude, and and I'm telling you, we wrestle with this. This seems to be Paul's conclusion, not as a problem to overcome, but a solution to be embraced is this. God's redemptive plan is ultimately about him, not me. I'm a recipient. He has set his affection on me. He has revealed his glory and his beauty. But you want to be the potter in the clay and flip things upside down. Just think that all of this ultimately centers on me. And you get it all reversed. And then you start claiming rights. And then you start wanting entitlement. And then you start saying things are not fair. Flip it back up and say, you are God. I am not. It's about your glory. And Lord, thank you as a child of God that you chose to show mercy to me. One who is completely undeserved. God's redemptive plan is ultimately about him and not us. A few verses here. We'll try to wrap up the chapter. My goal is to get to the end of the chapter. I hope we can get there. If not, we'll just continue on next week. You all are just listening really slow this morning. So we'll try to continue on verse 24. (laughs) So he continues on. He says, okay, even to us who are called from the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Paul's going to continue on. I'm not going to take time to read all this. We're going to deal with some of this next week and the weeks to come. He says that this plan of God is not just for the Jews. We've been given all these illustrations of the Old Testament. Paul says, glory of all glory. It's for us Gentiles too, non-Jews. Then he says, but at the same time, God chose to redeem a remnant in Israel. And God is going to carry out his purposes for Israel. What is the future for Israel? We'll be there in two weeks. Chapter 11, you've got to come back. Hear the rest of the story. But here's Paul's point in these verses. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What does all that mean? Speaking to the Jews and Gentiles, big idea number five is this. God's sovereign choice is global in his scope. The point is, does this doctrine, this teaching of God's sovereignty and salvation somehow inhibit Or does it somehow uh, uh, cause us not to go to the nations with the gospel? Paul's going to declare throughout Romans and other places the reality that God saves and his salvation is for the nations and his choice is global emboldens us in mission to go to the ends of the earth. It emboldens us to send out the Beverly's and the Hearts, two families from our church that we're going to send out under our watch care and our love and our sending out from our church. And we send them out believing you're not part of a maybe that God might work out. You are part of God's redemptive plan that he has called men and women from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Now take the gospel knowing, here's where we started, God's redemptive purpose will not fail. And you are part of something that God will bring to conclusion because it's not about what's in the person in Indonesia. It's not about what's in the person in Africa. It's not about what's in that person across the street. It's about what is in him who calls. And he promises to keep his word. He will carry out his gospel and his purposes will not fail. So Paul says God's redemptive purposes are global. Now go make Jesus known with boldness. Go make Jesus known with confidence, knowing that he is at the work of saving men and women, boys and girls, and drawing them to himself. 
And then finally, we'll close with this, verse 30. Again, we're going to hit on this next week, really leading into chapter 10. But Paul concludes, he says, okay, so what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. So the wonder of wonders is you got these Gentiles who weren't pursuing God. God extended mercy to them. You had these Jews who were pursuing it, but they were pursuing it because of works. He says they didn't attain it. How's all that work? Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, those Jews, but as if it were based on works. He does not talk about God's sovereign election here. He answers a question in this way, and this is one of the conundrums of all this. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Big idea number six, and we'll close. God's sovereign choice results in righteousness for those who believe and holds responsible those in unbelief. How's all that work together? I don't know. How's all that fit together in the mind of God? I don't know. But we're going to see next week, and as the team comes on up and just begins to play, we're going to move into time response. We're going to see next week clearly. It still calls us to go tell. It still calls us to make known the gospel. It still holds us responsible for faith and repentance. And undergirding every single bit of that is the sovereign choice of God who will carry out his purposes. And in that we are to rejoice, and in that we are to worship. And here's my prayer for you and for me through this series. Just kind of in an attitude of kind of going into response time here for just a minute, but just think about this. I, I really want us to have a good understanding of, of doctrine and of what the Bible says about this whole idea of divine election and choice. I want us to have that. Here's what I want more than that as a result of that. God, give us a right view of who you are. That's the point. Paul says, is God's word going to fail? Can I trust him? Can you trust him when the circumstances don't seem to be lining up and it's as if God's plan is not carried out? Paul says, may it never be. Your God is absolutely sovereign. His character is just. He works with mercy. He works out of grace and have complete sovereignty. And in all that, he is good. And you can trust him. I want you to know who God is according to the way he has revealed himself, even in tough passages like Romans 9. Because there will be those moments when it doesn't make sense and you're going to cling to the truths of Romans 9. And I pray that with that we have a right view of who God is and we have a right view of who we are. Our tendency is to flip it, like Isaiah said, upside down. I'm God. You're not. I want us to see He is God and there is no other. I want us to look at our circumstances with He is God and there is no other. And I want us to understand that what Romans 9 teaches, watch this. It is a pride-smashing truth that Paul teaches in Romans chapter 9. It crushes our human pride. Where then is boasting? It is, no, it is gone. God reigns supreme. It is about him and not me. And I want us to look forward to the day when we will all who believe gather around the throne and we will sing holy, holy, holy like we did before. That's a foretaste, by the way, what's coming. 
And we're not going to be patting ourselves on our back and saying, man, I'm so glad I believed. I'm so glad I worked this thing out. I'm so glad I figured this thing of redemption out. No. God, praise you for your mercy. I am standing before the Lamb and the God of the universe because you showed mercy. Fairness, I get judgment. You gave me mercy. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Pray with me. Lord, press these great truths into our heart. Lord, bring us to a place of humility. Bring us to a place of compassion for those who do not know you. And Lord, help us to see who we are in light of who you are for your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.